Genesis chapter 2, please. Genesis chapter 2 and Luke 24. We are continuing in this series, which I call the Doctrine of the Mystery. Very important doctrine. And it will be taking in vast amounts of the scripture. And I think you'll see that today. But Genesis 2. This isn't just accidental, actually, but Ricky and Sherry, this I've done hundreds of performed or officiated at hundreds of weddings in the past 41 years. And this will be the longest wedding message I've ever proclaimed. So. So. Because this actually has to do with what I call the great mystery, the great mystery. And we'll see. I think you'll see what I mean fairly soon. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. And if you get the connection, you may get the connection very early as I read these first couple of passages. And there'll be 50 or 60 more during the course of the message. But Genesis 2.23, and Adam said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And verse 24, because of this, a man will leave his father and his mother and join himself to his wife. Now, Luke 24, 39. I call this the riven because his side was riven by the spear of the Roman soldier and the risen, the riven and the risen Christ. Verse 39 of Luke 24, Jesus said, notice my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. As you can see, I have. The first Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The last Adam said, Handle me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. As you can see, I have. The man, Christ Jesus, left his father in the sense that the eternal Son of God was sent on a mission in which he would become flesh, assume a human nature, and become obedient to the extent of the death of the cross, where in dying for all as one, all died. He is the last Adam, and fulfills the type of the first Adam who joins himself to a wife and declares, she is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam is called the first man. First Corinthians fifteen forty seven a Because he is the first single inclusive representative. We've always represented that as the title, sir. Single inclusive representative for all 
of humankind. That's why he's called the first man. And then there isn't an endless succession of men. There is the second man. The second man is Christ Jesus. He is called the second man in 1 Corinthians 15, 47, B, the second part of that verse, because he is the second single inclusive representative or sir of all humankind. Though we call him sir, I personally call him Lord. The first sir was from the earth, Paul says, and the second sir was from heaven. The second man is the son of man who came down from heaven and ascended back to heaven. But only after he was lifted up on the cross from which he draws all judgment to himself, giving himself for his bride. He draws all judgment to himself and drags all of humanity and all of creation to himself to effectively be joined to himself in death, in burial, in resurrection, and in the elevation to the heaven from which he descended. The eternal word became flesh to become one flesh with all of humanity. In fact, to join himself with all of created reality, to make all of created reality his bride, not just a few elect people, by joining himself to all of created reality, such as the meaning of the word became Sark's flesh, material reality. In his resurrection body, Jesus made it clear to his disciples who thought they saw a ghost. It is Halloween season. But he made it very clear to them, and he said, go ahead, grab me, handle me. One of the words in the Greek means grope me. See that I have flesh and bones. Ghosts don't have those. The fact that Jesus had flesh and bones testified to the fact that not only was he really risen from the dead to receive a transcorporeal body, but it also testified to the fact that he is the second man and that now all of humanity, in fact, all of created reality, was joined to him to become flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. Furthermore, this is why Ephesians 5.30, Paul writes, because we are members of his body. Now, the Textus Receptus, one of the major manuscripts, not always the best, but it's reflected in the King James Version, the New King James, the Young's Literal, the Byzantine Greek New Testament, the majority text, supported by several other manuscripts in Ephesians 5.30, adds the words, not only we are members of his body, but we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, A.T. Robertson dogmatically pronounces, and I'm always careful when I see 
dogmatic pronouncements. He dogmatically pronounces that these additional words are, quote, certainly not genuine. Well, even if they are not included in some of the better manuscripts, however, they reveal that Paul is in fact alluding to Adam's pronouncement from Genesis 2.23 and applying it to Christ, which is typical with Paul's later and more defined Adam-Christ comparison. I believe Ephesians wasn't one of the later, but one of the earlier, in fact, the primal epistle of Paul. And so he's kind of introducing something that he fans out and refines in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 49, the Adam-Christ Christology. And again in Romans 5, 12 to 21, which I believe is Paul's last of the church epistles the Adam-Christ comparison contrast. We're more certainly assured that Paul is reflecting on Genesis passage because in 531 of Ephesians, you may be turning there if you wish, he quotes nearly verbatim the Greek text of Genesis 2.24. So in Ephesians 5.30 to 31, the text reads, quote, because we are members of his body and his flesh and of his bones, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and will join himself with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So whether the words of his flesh and of his bones are in the Greek text of Paul's original epistle or not, it doesn't matter, because Ephesians 5.30 nevertheless is alluding to Genesis 2.23, and is followed in 531 by a verbatim quote of 224. Now, Genesis 224 has the future tense, and it says, a man will leave his father and his mother and join himself to his wife. This, I believe, to be a prophecy of Jesus Christ crucified. For he left his father in the sense that his father sent him. God loved the world so much that he sent his son. He gave his son. So the son, in that sense, left the father. And on the cross, Jesus left the mother of his human nature. And he said, behold your mother to the beloved disciple. And mother, behold your son. Nailed to a tree, he left his mother. But in the act of the Christ event, he was joining himself to a bride. Giving himself for a bride. I'm going to clarify that in a few moments. Again, and I feel like I'm in a dialectic with some of the fundamentalists, exegetes of our time. Contrary to Robertson's assertion that, quote, it seems absurd to make Paul mean Christ here by the word anthropos or man, as some commentators do, he said. Now, to that, I would reply, why is it absurd that Paul's referring to Christ? Because Paul's most important interpretive principle for the Old Testament scriptures is Jesus Christ and him crucified and knowing nothing else. Don't tell me it's absurd. 
that the man is the man, Christ Jesus. The second man, the last Adam, the second and last single inclusive representative. For in Adam, the first sir, all die. In Adam, Christ, the second sir, all are made alive. And to make that all mean something else is an error of most egregious kind because it reflects upon God's very character and nature poorly. A man is the man, Christ Jesus. Left is father. The word for left is the same word used for forsaken or abandoned. Why have you abandoned me? And his mother in his crucifixion, precisely to join himself to his bride, precisely to unite himself, not with an elect few Christians, but with all of creation, which Paul in another place depicts as a woman in labor, sighing for liberation, a woman in travail, Romans 8.22. So if this is not Christ, then why did the risen Jesus speak of the prophets, speaking of the necessity of Messiah's suffering and entry into glory? In Matthew, in Luke 24, 26, and 27. And why five verses after showing his disciples that he was flesh and bones, Did the riven and the risen Jesus say, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, and that includes Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. The prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And that's why Jesus said to the fundamentalists of his own day who intended to kill him, in John five thirty nine to 40, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify of me. Don't tell me it's absurd that Paul is referring to Christ in that word anthropos. In verse 40, Jesus said, and you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. He then added, I don't accept glory from men. What an indictment. Jesus would and did accept glory, however, from his father, only through suffering. He would and did enter into glory only through suffering the death of the cross. Now, for our purposes, we're presenting the doctrine of the mystery. Let's see how Paul continued after citing Genesis 2, 23 and 24. In Ephesians 5, 30 to 31, what does he say? What does this imperial slave of Jesus Christ inspired by the Holy Spirit say after those two verses? Well, in 532, he said, this is a great mystery. I am speaking of Christ and the church. But there's a new ecclesiology, a new study of the church that needs to unfold in the 21st century. What is the church? Last week, we spoke of Jesus' body. And in the case of Psalms, 
He said, ears you have dug out for me, Father. The ears dug out for the Messiah standing for the whole body of the word made flesh. Likewise, there are times in the writings of Paul that when he says the word mystery, it's deployed for only part of the mystery. For example, the mystery of Israel's salvation being temporarily suspended until the totality of the Gentiles comes in. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery like the majority of Christians are today so that you would not be wise in your own estimation, proud, separated, segregated from others as the so-called elect. Let me tell you, it's only temporary. They're hardening, and it's only partial until all the nations come in and then all Israel will be saved. That's a mystery, but it's not all the mystery. It's the ears, not the body, but it's the ears for the body in that same manner of speaking. Paul is intent that the Roman saints not remain ignorant of this mystery because ignorance of it would leave them in a so-called wisdom according to their own conceit. And it would preserve their own group or denominational bias rather than a true wisdom that leads to love. But this mystery in Romans 11.25 is Paul using a kind of synecdoche where the mystery, the word ultimately, means something much more than the salvation of all of Israel, and that's pretty big in itself. And it means much more than the coming into salvation of all the nations even with Israel. The mystery as a whole, or the mystery in its totality, extends to a horizon that is even greater than the salvation of all of Israel and the salvation of all the nations. The mystery of the Jews and Gentiles being one body in Ephesians 3. And equal beneficiaries of the gospel in Ephesians 3, 6. That's only part of the mystery of Christ, as Paul calls it in 3, 4. It's not all of it. The salvation of all of Israel held at bay temporarily and her partial hardness until the totality of the Gentiles comes in, that's only a facet of the mystery, not the whole of it. And those who claim to know the mystery today will tell you that's the whole of it. Jews and Gentiles together. That's not the whole of the mystery. That's not the mystery in toto. How about when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, let me tell you a mystery. We will not all die but we will all be changed, all be changed. He's talking about all once an Adam now in Christ, all will be changed when they're brought to a permanence of life. He's speaking only of the part of the mystery there, not the whole of it, a part of it. Part of the mystery in toto or the total mystery is the resurrection and translation of all human bodies, which will become incorruptible and immortal in one seventieth of a second at the sound of the voice of the Son of God, the second man, the Son of Man. All we wait for is his shout. 
The change that will happen to all of human bodies, of all human beings over the course of all of time, in accordance with 1 Corinthians 15.22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, as astounding as that prospect is, a general resurrection of all humanity diachronically through all of history into life. It's only part of the mystery. In the closing verses of Romans 16, which is 25 to 27, which may also suffice as a summation of all Paul's collection of epistles. In Romans 16, 25 to 27, now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery. Kept silent for ages of time gone by, but is now manifested through the writings of the prophets. And that is a word there, a synecdoche used to describe the whole of the Old Testament. It's revealed what once was kept silent in the writings of the prophets. Now pops the man in Genesis 2 is Christ. For example. The suffering servant in Isaiah 40 through 55 is Christ, for example. Everywhere and on every page. The, re- the mystery kept silent for ages of time gone by, but is now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience that is a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by all the nations. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory for the ages. Amen. Now, Romans 16, 25 and 26 is a reference not only to the ears, part of the mystery, but to the whole body. Not only to part of the mystery, but the whole of the mystery. There is a mystery that envelops the whole of the divine purpose, the entirety of his plan. The total horizon of his objective. Here the mystery is conceived in its totality. That's which I've called in the past the mystery in toto. I-N-T-O-T-O. In Ephesians, which I'm tending more and more to regard as the primal epistle of Paul. The apostle speaks of the mystery in its totality first. The first time Paul speaks of the mystery, he speaks of it in its totality. In its entirety, in its full horizon. There is a mystery spoken of in its totality. Namely, Ephesians 1, 8 through 11. Where he speaks of, quote, the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, which he set forth in Christ That's the whole mystery, the mystery in toto, the mystery in its totality, the whole body instead of just the ears. And what is that? He is speaking of Jesus Christ as he in whom God intends to recapitulate everything in Ephesians 1.10. Just as all reality can be summed up in Jesus, divine and creational, uncreated and created reality, summed up in Jesus, all the mystery is summed up in Christ. When the doctrine of the mystery 
and with it we are knowing nothing. And I know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul speaks of Christ as God's mystery, he's speaking of Jesus Christ as he in whom God intends to recapitulate everything. Of him, in fact, of whom God intends to comprise everything in all of its times. Now, this has astounding implications. This is even too big for universalists to handle. This has astounding implications for each of us as well as for all of us. All of humanity, diachronically, that means over all the course of all time. Because this means not only that we are to undergo a permanent change to receive bodies like Jesus' own glorious body. But when we, that happens, we will also be stripped of a will, of a volition that is tainted by sin. And we will be left only with the natural will, which like that of the Son of God is entirely obedient and in an obediential potency, as the old-timers called it, which has no possibility of disobedience, but at the same time is totally free. We'll be coming onto that subject soon. It occurs through what I call instauration. This is a matter that we'll attend to in great detail later down the road in future months. But for now, be intrigued by the idea that Paul wished to approach that state in this life, the resurrection from the dead, meaning not that he would have a body like the resurrected body in this life, but that he would be more and more attuned to a will that is singularly obedient to Jesus Christ and to the Father by the Holy Spirit. God in him willing, God in him doing, the old man off. More and more. It's a state in which the dynamic condition, which is only finally realized in the bodily resurrection, where the will tainted by sin is entirely replaced by the will that intends with God's own will. And there and there alone is freedom. In the primal Pauline epistle, traditionally called Ephesians. The word mystery was actually written to Laodiceans first. The word mystery is deployed six times. And in Colossians, four times. Colossians mentions the Ephesian epistle as epistle to the Laodiceans. In Ephesians, the first mention of the mystery is a reference to it in its totality. Again, not just the ears, but the whole body in a manner of speaking. As we just observed, there's a special reference to the mystery in Ephesians 5.32, where Paul says, this is a great mystery, ta musterion tuto mega, the mega mystery, adding, I'm talking about Christ in the church. I'm talking about Christ in the church. My grandson once said something, and it didn't sound legible. Pam and I asked him, would you just say? And he says, you don't understand. I'm talking in a different language. 
<laughs> he thought by speaking in a different, you know, that it would be a different language. Well, Paul, he's saying, what are you talking about, Paul? Paul says, I am talking about Christ and the church. In Genesis 2.24, Paul, Paul sees the mega mystery. And why not? And don't argue with a man who sees the total horizon if you only see part of it. I'm, only, I'm not speaking to people here. I'm speaking to people who think they know something. And I, for one, don't know anything yet as I ought to know it. But I have seen by the faith that God has given me a horizon that's universal and that Christ's saving significance is universal and not partial. And I, if I ever say anything different, I hope the Lord takes me home because that would be an insult against my Savior, the Savior of the world, our great God and Savior. To me, it's not a matter of switching from an election of part of humanity to an election of all of humanity. To me, it's a vision of Jesus Christ in his total saving significance, in his all saving significance. And I know nothing else. And anything I preach comes from him and comes from a vision of him as an all saving savior. I do not frustrate the universal grace of God by emphasizing the heinousness of human sin over the magnificence of the grace of God in Christ. So what is the church? The eternal God has commanded that the mystery be unveiled in the writings of the prophets, and that includes Genesis. The great mystery seems to speak of the mystery in toto while speaking of Christ in the church. But someone will say, is that just not part of the mystery, that mega mystery? I say, not really. And let me explain. The church is not ultimately an entity consisting of pope and bishops, priests, nuns, and laity. Certainly not. That's not the church. Nor is it an assemblage consisting of apostles and prophets, pastors who teach, and evangelists who evangelize, along with a congregation of gifted ministers. Ultimately, the church, called ecclesia in the Greek, the called out and called together assembly, is all of creation in all of its times. The bride of Christ represented as the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Christ is said to be head over all things in Ephesians 1.22, and that ultimately means that the all things constitutes his body, of which he is the head. If he's the head of all things, then all things are the body of which he is the head. That's the mystery. All of creation in all of its times comprised of the eternal word made flesh. The word. Ultimately, the church then is all of creation in all of its times. And that ultimately means that the all things constitute his body, his flesh, and his bones. The church, in the end, is all things brought under subjection to Christ's gracious headship, which means that all things will consist of Christ. Imagine that consist of Christ.
And so if God is pleased to dwell in his son, he's certainly pleased to dwell in him when his son has become flesh. He's certainly pleased to dwell in him when his son in the flesh is crucified because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not logging their transgressions against them like news media do and like Christians do. As an atheist once famously said, Christians are the only ones that shoot their wounded. Once I agree with an atheist. And Christ fills up all things with himself. Then God will be pleased to dwell in all things because they're filled up with Christ. If he's pleased to dwell in his son, he's pleased to dwell in his son as his son is in all things. And then you know what happens? It's something called 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. God is all in all. Got that vision yet? Then you don't have the Christian gospel because that's the gospel. That which we call the church, the bride, the wife of the lamb, call it whatever you will. It's ultimately all of creation and all of its times as the complement and consort of the one by whom all things are brought into being and who is to fill up all things with himself. Why do you think he descended from the highest heaven to the lowest regions of the earth and then on his way to the back to the heavens, he was lifted up on a cross so that Ephesians 4.10 says he would fill up all things with himself. Even voices from under the earth will praise him when every tongue acknowledges him. He first descended to the lowest and then ascended to the highest, but in between was lifted up on a cross to draw all judgment on himself and to cast a net over all of the creation. They've even seen it now. They see the filaments extending beyond the infinite, what they call infinite universe. They see filaments. They see what they call a web extended over all of the billions and billions and trillions of galaxies. What do you think that is? It's the net that Jesus cast from the cross when he said, if I'm lifted up, I will drag everything. Your will isn't free until you've been dragged to Jesus Christ. Now, so the great mystery is the instauration. The restoration of all things by the joining of the Christ to all things and the joining of all things to Christ. That is why the church, which is his body, is finally the all things that he fills up with himself. That which we call the church today, this is where there has to be a radical change of ecclesiology. It's understood by millions to be the full complement of people who believe in Jesus Christ and who are in union with him. The church is also perceived as being the elect of God and as such distinguished from the rest of humanity. Inasmuch as God intends to save all of humanity, however, in 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, and is the savior of all, 1 Timothy 4, 10, the idea that the church is the exclusive elect and that the rest are to be consigned to an eternal separation from God is not only a terribly erroneous belief, but an evil brand of Calvinism that is purely monstrous. And when taught to children, 
is an abuse of children. It's called child abuse. God loves you and created everything so that he could damn most of it to an eternal, unending trillions and trillions of years of eternal torment where after trillions of years, the torment only just begins. You think that's Christian? You think that's Christianity? If it is, then it's the worst damn religion ever invented by the devil himself. And it makes God worse than the devil by an infinite stretch. Forgive me if I'm preaching. Like I tell people when they ask me what I do for a living, I say I'm a preacher, but don't hold that against me. God is the savior of all humankind, especially those who believe or of those who have faith. And they are especially saved, we could say, only in the sense and precisely only in the sense that the great salvation that was wrought for all on the cross of Christ by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, John 19.30, Titus 2.11, Titus 2.13, Titus 3.4, and will be experienced by all flesh when he comes from heaven again in the parousia in Luke 3.6, can be experienced in some measure now at least in the realm of hope, because faith is the conviction of things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for. So the especially those who believe means that they can experience in some measure or eat in some measure the bread of the tomorrow's banquet today, at least in the realm of hope, for we are saved in hope in Romans 8.24. So this also accentuates the value and doesn't take away from it at all, but accentuates it further of assembling together to receive the implanted word, which is what? Empowered to what? Save our souls. Especially those who believe. Even now in this waning evil age, thank God this evil age is on the wane and the messianic age is on the wax. Galatians 1, 4, 2 Corinthians four seventeen to 18. In other words, the tyrannies that enslave people in this age, those who believe and by their faith perceive the totality of God's love can be in great measure by the Holy Spirit released and liberated from those enslaving tyrannies. And that's what it means to be especially those that believe. So that which is called the church, and don't worry, you're getting a break soon. And that which is envisaged by people in their imagination as people assembled in the name of Jesus Christ is really only a provisional or an interim or a proleptic prediction of the universal reconciliation that has, listen carefully, already been wrought through the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ who left father and mother to cling to his bride that being all of the creation and all of its times the husband fills up the bride who is his complement and his pleroma and his fullness and that which Jesus fills up is not just a few elect people even a few billion elect people it's all things 
The entire realm of created reality invaded by uncreated divinity in the word made flesh to join himself to all of created reality. That's the gospel. That is the horizon that the deep and abiding faith that God gifted me with in January 23rd of 1972 in the most desperate place I've ever been. That's what my faith has seen after 48 more years of it. You can convince somebody to believe a different doctrine, but you can't convince a man that's seen a vision that he hasn't seen the vision. The horizon. I can see now how martyrs die singing. So in closing, Christ left father and mother. The individual divine person whom we call Christ is not all that Christ is. All of Christ is Christ and all things which he now comprises. Reality is Jesus, whether the reality is divine or whether the reality is created. All things is Christ. In him bodily is all the fullness of what can be called deity or divinity, Colossians 2.9. In him Bodily is the fullness of all that can be called divinity, deity. And in him is all things that have ever proceeded from God, but are not God. Things brought into existence that did not exist before. Things given life that were dead. The word became flesh. And this is when I saw the universal horizon at first, the first flicker of it. The word became flesh. And in doing so, he entered into the realm of created reality in order to make all things be one with him, to join himself to all created reality as his bride, to be bone of his bones, bones that were unbroken at Calvary. In John 19:36. So when they came to break his legs, they realized he was already dead, so they didn't break him because in Exodus twelve forty six, the lamb that was offered was to have none of his bones broken. And many of the tribulations of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Not one of his bones will be broken. Psalm thirty four twenty. Bone of my bones, none of which were broken. Flesh of my flesh, which was riven, but is risen. That's you. The action of filling up all things with himself. What a wonderful vision. Ephesians one twenty two and 4.10. Paul's primal epistle. It's what I call instauration. Or the transformation of all things through the cross. This is the name of the doctrine, instauration. You say, when are you going to teach it? Well, I've been building it out of a thousand hints. A doctrine built out of a thousand hints. You've heard a death by a thousand cuts. 
I'm building a doctrine by a thousand hints. It is brought about this instauration by the descent of the son of man to the lower parts of the earth and his ascent to the highest heavens between which is his being lifted up like a snake on a pole to drag all to himself. John three fourteen and twelve thirty two, And by so doing to fill everything with himself, including and between the lowest part of the earth, even under the earth in Philippians two ten, to the highest and loftiest heavenly height where the supreme majesty resides. So that God who is delighted to dwell in his son, this is my son in whom I am pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.19 with John, with Matthew 3.17. So that God who is delighted to dwell in his son in a mutual perichoresis, a mutual interpenetration in the spirit, will be delighted to dwell in all things in a mutual universal perichoresis, a mutual interpenetration of God with all things, so that God will be all in all. Now marriage, and after the break, this will lead into your marriage service, Ricky and Sherry. Marriage is the human analogy to this great mystery. For a man leaves his father and his mother to cleave to his wife. This does not have, again, reference specifically to Adam because he had no mother to leave. Don't tell me it's Adam. And he was also called the son of God in Luke 3.38. This applies ultimately to the second man, the last Adam, Jesus, the divine son of God who left his father in the sense of being sent on a divine mission which required his being made flesh by incarnation and transforming all things by instauration. by first being born of a woman. He also left his mother to the care of the beloved disciple as he was nailed to the cross. Christ then fulfills the bride even as the bride completes the Christ as the everything which he fills full. So she's called the pleroma of him. She's called the pleroma of him in Ephesians one twenty three. The pleroma, the full complement of him who fills everything up with himself. She is the everything that he fills. Marriage is an everyday illustration of what was effectively finished at the cross, cross of Christ. And it's a hope filled reminder of what will effectively be manifested universally when Christ our deliverer comes again from heaven and changes, changes our bodies. You might want to even call that hope and change. The bodies of our humiliation changed into bodies of glories like his own glorious body in Philippians 3.20. And when all flesh don't qualify the word all. Don't mess with all in the Bible, preacher, pope, monsignor, bishop, evangelist, 
famous TV evangelist. Don't mess with the word all. When it says that all are justified and given justifying life through Jesus Christ with meritorious obedience, it means all. And when all flesh experiences the salvation of God in Isaiah 40 and verse 5, which means salvation means being comprised of Jesus Christ. His name means salvation. Yahweh saves. Yahweh, our salvation. The salvation that is God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit, who even now sighs. The Holy Spirit sighs in all creation sighs and groans in us as we groan in great anticipation and wait with intense expectation for the epiphany, the universal appearance of our great God and Savior, who not only will transform our bodies into bodies of glory, but who will bring everything, 321 of Philippians, into the kingdom of his Father. And everyone to the universal banqueting table to partake of the bread, which is life for the world. Father, thank you for giving us today the bread of tomorrow in the form of a message. And thank you, Father, for the upcoming ceremony in which two people, and there are none that I could say any more about that could represent this message today as Ricky and Sherry together. And as we anticipate that service, we pray that you will allow us to go forth from here with our sighs accompanied by great expectation. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.